Are you here? Sorry. I was feeling a little weak there. I thought I'd better put some muscle into it. So, are you here? Uh, we think it's better that you're here than, than somewhere else, you know? And thank you for cruising in. Welcome. It's the Paul Leslie Hour, and you are here. Hey, today we got an interview from the archives with jazz saxophonisto Mike Smith, a native of Chicago. Hey, before I tell you more about Mike Smith, can you do us a quick favor? Subscribe to The Paul Leslie Hour on YouTube. It's easy to find, and it's free to do. And once you do, do please ring that bell. Ding, ding, please. Now, more about today's interview. Chicago saxophone legend Mike Smith has performed all around the world and worked with more than a hundred greats of music. Nat Adderley, Jimmy Heath, Clark Terry, Tony Bennett, Natalie Cole, Linda... Mm, how do you pronounce that? Bronstadt, Diane Schur, Harry Connick Jr., Nancy Wilson, my, my, and Frank Sinatra. Yep, Mike Smith has toured with Frank Sinatra Jr. till the very end of Frankie's life. And that's how we got connected with Mike Smith, and we're really glad we did. So, real quick now, the Paul Leslie Hour, well, you're here, you know about this. We depend on listeners and viewers like you. Please consider making a contribution. It keeps the operation going, keeps the wheels turning. Go to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you. And now, ladies and gents, it is the Mike Smith interview. It's time. The man who joins us is a Chicago native, a saxophonist, recording artist, and band leader, Mr. Mike Smith. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. What does jazz mean to you? <laughs> uh, what does jazz mean to me? I, I, it, it, it incorporates so much. I mean, it, it's it's music with freedom because we're able to improvise. It's got uh, it's got rules if we follow them, uh, you know, harmonically and. Rhythmically, stylistically, and I just think it's a it's a great art form that that really lets your individuality come out in in what you play. Has the reason that you've created the music that you create changed through the years? Oh, I would say it, it has quite a bit over the years. And then I re I revisit earlier things that I did. I mean. When I when I was really young and coming up and trying to learn how to play, it was very traditional. I was trying to copy the masters. Then I went more into a free period where I was just experimenting and doing things on my own. And then uh, my career's taken taken a lot of different angles. I mean, I've had to uh, play traditional music. You know, I've I played big band. I played in orchestras. And then I play a bunch of different instruments, so it's constantly evolving. And I don't really even like the word jazz music. I don't. I, I, 
kind of I'd prefer if it was just uh, improvised music or and it's so it's so hard when we when we label things and call it this or call it that and I think I think a lot of times it it uh, affects how the listener reacts to it because of its label jazz music it's just it's American music. Earl Clue, the guitarist, has said kind of the same thing. He doesn't like that word jazz. Yeah, well, it's because it has some connotations that if people aren't informed and don't really know what that is, you know, oh, I don't like jazz. Well, and I mean, it's such a broad, broad spectrum of, I mean, the word jazz, I mean, it covers so many different things. So, you know, and that to me, that's 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 always been my biggest fear. A lot of people say they don't like jazz. Then they come to a club and hear what's jazz, and then they like it. Yeah. So, what were the recordings that made the biggest influence on you? Oh, probably when when I was first coming up in, in high school and listening to stuff, and I was listening to players on my own instrument, saxophone players. And since I played mostly the alto sax then, I'd have to say Charlie Parker and Cannibal Adderley and Sonny Stitt. I was listening to anything I could get my hands on back in those days. Just don't forget, I grew up with the LP. So, you know, music was not not uh, as easily obtained back then. Now, you know, you have YouTube, you, you go online, you can hear anything. But our day, you had to go to the record store, borrow records, go to the library. Do you think that this accessibility of music, this instantaneous and just everywhere and at any time on your phone, do you think this has hurt music or helped music? Well, in some ways it has hurt us. It's hurt us as artists trying to to uh, make any money off of our 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 craft because it's it's pretty much available for free there's such a glut of it it's hard for for anything to stand out but it, but as for a learning thing for students and everything it's fantastic i mean that they you have access to everything but as far as is how it's affected us professionals it's 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 tough it really makes like a, a new release hard to get a get a you know stand out because there's so much coming out every day. To you, what makes a successful musical performance? What makes a successful music? I would have to say, uh, what makes us a success is if the uh, performer is satisfied and the audience is satisfied. That combination of the two. The people, after they've heard a performance and they leave and they're moved by it, and the musician is moved by his performance, I, w I would I would say that that would be my answer. Do you ever think about the composer of a song while you're performing it? I don't know if I actually think about him. I do try to, in, in all my shows and everything, I always let the uh, audience know who the composer was, the lyricist was. And then I also try to sometimes I tell them I I kind of do my concerts and stuff almost like a clinic. I I'll even tell people like what a great recording if they want to go hear something. 
just so that, uh, you know, I'm giving out some information. And I, I learned a lot of that from Sinatra. He always, he always credited who the arrangers were, the composers, the lyricists, because they're the, the really important ones. They're the ones that, that wrote the music that we play. Is there a saxophonist you would most compare yourself with? No, I think I think all of us have, you know, we have our influences. My influence, main influence was Cannonball Adderley. I have to say that was when I was young and coming up and I heard that I was attracted to the sound, his tone, the lines he played. So in my early days, I really tried to learn his style and everything. And people have come paired my playing a lot to that but, but I also I I try to uh, I've tried to incorporate a lot of other players and a lot of singers into my playing so that some of my stuff is lyrical like a, I guess I've tried to turn in uh, being an instrumentalist into doing the same kind of concept as a vocalist what got you the idea to do that or made you feel like that was something you wanted to do um, I think being around vocalists and, you know, I was around Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra Jr. for so many years, you know, I, I got to see, I got to really experience what that is. And I've always thought that's, that's a, a main, you know, if you can get a singing quality out of your in, instrument, you know, it's going to reach the people. And I, I do know from, from hearing stories that a lot of Sinatra stuff he got from an instrumentalist. He got he got from Tommy Dorsey. So I think the two of the vocalist and the instrumentalist, the two of us together, that's what makes a great combination. We're talking with saxophonist Mike Smith. Who would you say taught you the most about music from a teacher student kind of situation? Well I've had a lot of teachers over the years. I my main teacher when I went to college, his name was Jim Riggs, and produced a lot of many fine saxophone players came out of his studio. I think he, he taught it. And I went to North Texas State, which is now, I think, called the University in North Texas. And it was one of the really early jazz programs at a university level. And he did a lot. He spent a lot of extra time with me and uh, really taught me how to play the instrument and exposed me to listening to a lot of great music. So I'd, I'd have to say he was one of them. I, I also had a, I had a great band director when I first started on the instrument. His name was Bob Reich. And then I had another, I've had, you know, band directors that I went through, Jerry Engelberg, Frank Mana, different teachers that I had. But my college teacher, who I've still, still stayed close with to this day, he uh, he really helped me a lot, especially on learning how to play my instrument. You performed and recorded with over a hundred of the greats in jazz. Some of them are very, very iconic, like Tony Bennett. As some of them aren't with us anymore, Natalie Cole, for example. I'm just going to list a few of them that you've performed with. Nat Adderley, Clark Terry, Linda Ronstadt. Diane Shore, Nancy Wilson. Was there any that you liked the most, the most likable? 
No, I, I can't say that I liked the most. There were some of them that became very close friends of mine. I, w- I was very close to Nat Adderley and his family, and I still am to this day. Very special. The Sinatra's, Sinatra's were very special to me. I mean, I was there for over 35 years with the Sinatra family. Um, a lot of them were just me playing shows, backing them up. But and I've also became very friendly with Nancy Wilson, and a lot of that was because of the Cannonball connection with my playing. And, and I started playing with Nat Adderley in the early '80s. He took a very liking to me and my family, and and so it became more more of just than just playing music. I spent a lot of time at their house, so. Uh, some of the some of those connections ended up becoming very personal. How did you first come to meet Frank Sinatra? I was playing in Buddy Rich's band, and we were backing Sinatra on some shows. We were doing a couple of tours, and we did a television show in the Dominican Republic called Concert of the Americas. They kind of took a liking to me, and then after I'd left Sinatra, I started getting called to uh, fill in and play play some of the show, local shows and stuff for Sinatra. And then I started working for Frank Sinatra Jr. as a full-time musician. And at that time, he also was the conductor for his father. So I was on all... I became a permanent member of the Frank Sinatra Orchestra. What was Frank Sinatra like to be around? Oh, amazing. A real... He had so so much energy up there and so much charisma. And the way he sold a song, it was... Uh, I'd have to say that was be probably my postgraduate work for, for being a musician. The way he reached people and through his body, through, through everything. The feeling he put into a song. He really told a story when he, when he sang a song. Was it at all intimidating being around Frank Sinatra? I think at the, in the early stages, uh, yes, I was, I was like a deer in headlights. I was totally scared. But as I got comfortable and they were comfortable with me, no, it was, it was fantastic. And he was amazing to musicians. Just incredible. Great to us. We were treated just first class all the way. And that carried on even with his son. We weren't uh, treated like hired help. We were, we were a really important part of, part of it. And I think, you know, they both knew that, that the musicians had a lot to do with the success that they had. So they treated us that way. What gave you the initial idea to record the album of yours, the Sinatra Songbook? Oh, the Sinatra Songbook. Well, you know, I, I had been with Sinatra a long time. And and I thought, you know, and I'd, I had done, I'd done a few records before that. And... So I thought, uh, you know, everybody was putting out Sinatra tributes, and I, I figured, well, since I've been, I work with Sinatra. I think I'll do one myself. So that's that's pretty much how it was. And then, and then I was fortunate that Frank was still with us then, so he got to hear a lot of the record, and he wrote some liner notes for me on there, as well as Frank Sinatra Jr. So it was kind of a sanctioned tribute record. Did you ever work with Frank Sinatra Sr., in this case, 
in a recording situation. Oh, yes. We did the duets records. I did the live 80th concert. A lot of television shows. So, yeah, I had quite some experience with Sinatra in the recording studio. One of my favorite interviews ever was with Frank Sinatra Jr. on this show. He was just a wealth of information. Oh, gosh, yes, he was. He was incredible. A lot of people don't know how studied in music and everything, orchestration and everything that he was. And he was, I have to say, he's one of my best friends. You know, we were together a long time. Did a lot of things together besides playing music. Weddings and christenings. They did everything together. It's a, a huge loss for me right now with him gone. What kind of man was he, the real Frank Sinatra Jr.? Oh, kind, very generous, generous to a fault. He do he he did anything he could for us, and and when I say us, there was a there was a group of eight of us that were his full time staff, and then and then you know we'd augment with local musicians to, to create the thirty six orchestra or the twenty two piece, and then we even had a smaller group too, an eight piece that I had written for him that had four horns and a rhythm section, and we were all to, we were together for over thirty years. Guys like Paul Rostock and Terry Anthony and you know Walt Johnson. We, we, uh, he had the same drummer Bob Camel. I think for, for mo- almost most of his career, forty some years. What was it like for you all when you were touring around the country presenting this music to people? Well, we we were like a family out there. We all you know watched each other's kids grow up and. We all spent a lot of time together. Paul Rostock and I, one of my best friends, and we went. We didn't miss much. I mean, wherever we went, we were sightseers. We went out, and did things together. So I mean, it was really a close knit family. It was a very unique working situation. Unique in what way? Well, usually, you know, when you're working and touring like that. I mean, I'm sure there's friendships involved, but you know, we were around so long together and did so many things together, went all over the world together. So it was it was never never work for us. We always look forward to being together and 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 unique in that we all got along. A lot of times you hear about groups that have been together for years but there's always some kind of conflicts. There wasn't we had nothing like that. It was just, I mean, great dinners we went to, you know, and Frank was was the ringleader. He was, uh, you know, he was very just concerned about all of us and always worried about us. So it wasn't like having a regular boss, and it wasn't a regular. It was a special job, really was. You were inspired to create this album called "Close Enough for Love." That was a, an idea he had had for for many years. He he wanted me to write something that especially a ballad record, and he had a couple of these records that he gave me. They were by Pete Lugolo. One was called Dimensions and Sound Reads, and another one was called Ten Saxophones, Two Basses. Basically what he had done is he had taken woodwinds or saxophones and made like a whole orchestra out of them. 
And he'd give me those records and, you know, it was just time and everything. And I kept putting it off, putting it off. And then uh, a couple of years ago, he, he kind of put the heat on me and said, you know, I don't ask much. I really want you to do it. So I said, okay, we'll do it. So I had started it. And before he passed away, I had completed three of them. So he got to hear hear me start it. And then, you know, when it was untimely passing and I decided I'm going to finish this for him and do it as a tribute. And then my good friend, Kurt Elling, we've been very close to since his career started. He was originally from Chicago. He said, oh, I'd love to sing a couple of them on there. So, so he sang a couple of the tunes that Frank was going to sing on them. What do you think about Kurt Elling as a vocalist? Oh, he's very unique, incredible. I mean, he's really incredible jazz musician. He's, uh, I don't think you really can compare him to anybody. Maybe maybe you can compare him to Mark Murphy a little bit. Or, but, but he's really developed and got his own style that's quite unique. Some of John Hendricks, you know, he's taken some of that vocalese things and made it his own style. But he's got a unique style. He's a great musician. A great human being, very kind, great guy. We're talking with Mike Smith. You've had a gig at this club, Andy's Jazz Club in Chicago. Tell us about this place and tell us about the music that you play there. My my club. I've been there. I've been there for thirty five years. Wow. I started there as a trial basis, and at the time when I when I uh, first started working there it was mostly traditional music so more more traditional jazz and i came in and i was younger and so i was playing a little more modern and they didn't know if they were going to like that or not but they did and i became very very close to the owners of the club and then it just it's has spiraled and whenever i was in town and able to play i had it so and they were always understanding when i was touring and on the road I've had a weekly gig there for 35 years. And now I do the first weekends of every month plus every Wednesday. So that's basically right now, since I'm not touring or anything, that's, that's my, uh, that's my main, main thing of part of playing that what I do. What's the biggest compliment somebody could give you? that we had fun and enjoyed your show. Because I, I think a lot of times as musicians, we get so into our thing that we we kind of forget them on, on the other side of the lights. We forget, you know, uh, sometimes we're playing and we're playing complicated things and stuff that really means a lot to us. And then sometimes we forget about, forget about the audience. And... You know, I like my audiences to go and say, oh, that was, we had a blast. It was really fun. That's the kind of music that I, I try to present to them. And then I, try, I hope when they leave my show, sometimes they'll go, because I always tell them, like, if I'm playing something, I give them what the original record was. I hope they go in and check it out, that we can keep jazz music going. Do you think jazz music will keep going? Oh, I do. I do. I think there's some incredible young people out there playing today that it's just hard because a lot of, we don't get a lot of help from media. 
if it's not a big money maker, you know, a lot of times. So it's this is great that that you're doing something like this, and we still have some public radio stations, but you know, a lot of the jazz stations have shut down on on FM radio. But I think the music's gonna always always gonna go because there's constantly there's new people coming in, and it's you know. I think that'll that'll happen, and you know uh, the oh, I, I don't know what the word I want to use, but the business end of it, you know, is going to have to to change to go with the times, I guess. No, I think jazz is going to always be here. Why do you think it is compared to other genres that jazz and, as we said at the beginning, it's such a very broad thing. You know, it, it could be so many different types of things and still be jazz, according to some people. Why do you think that it's kind of treated sometimes like a stepchild? Well, I don't think it, and I don't think it's just jazz. I think that's instrumental music, period. You know, uh, people, they have, you know, they're used to hearing a singer. They want to hear a singer. They want to hear words. They want... It takes a little more patience and stuff to get through and listen to instrumental music. So that's part of it, I would think. And we've got to be honest, you know, like I said earlier, if it, uh, what generates income, big income, is what gets the attention. And that's in everything, I think. Since we're such a small part of the pie, you know, I think media's given up on us a little bit. What is the best thing about being Mike Smith? Oh, uh, probably my family. I think that's that's the best thing. I've got I got a great family. I got three beautiful children. I've been married to the same woman now going on thirty eight years, who's still my best friend. So that's probably that's the part that I think I'm blessed with. Is she also a lover of music? Yes, we met music school. Okay. So, and she she teaches piano. She's an incredible piano player. We've we've had a great life together. So when you say what's the best thing about me, that I, I, that's honestly that's the truth. Very very open ended question for anyone listening in. What would you say to them? What would I say to them? Be good to other people. You know, be true to yourself. And uh, I think if you can do those things and live a good life like that, I don't, I don't see how it could be any better. Well, my last question. Who is Mike Smith? I don't know. That's a hard, that's a hard question. I don't know who he is really anymore. He's sort of a he's sort of a guy in in the maturing years of his life, looking back on a lot of things, looking back on things I was blessed to have been part of, um, and hoping for good things in the future. But as far as who I really am, uh, I think I'm a saxophone player that's. Still trying to get better. Hmm. Anyone who wants more information, they can visit 
the website. It's MikeSmithSaxophone.com. No dashes, just MikeSmithSaxophone.com. Yeah, and if they want to go and make it easier, they can just put MikeSmithSax.com. Okay. If they don't want to spell out the whole word, MikeSmithSax.com will work. Yeah, and there's there's stuff on there, and there's free listening. And I try to keep it current, what I'm doing, but but that's a good start. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's fantastic, really. I look forward to it. It was great. Okay. Will you take care of yourself and all the best to all your listeners, and uh, thank you very much. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.